Hey there, welcome to the party. On today's podcast, I'm interviewing Andy Holmes, the owner of Pinhale Bicycle Company. Pinhale is an independent frame builder that makes frames for those that want to adventure across the world or just explore their own backyard, maybe do a little bit of both. Andy talks about what got him into bikes in the first place, some of his history, some of his rides, and then we kind of do a deep dive into the materials used on bike frames. Pinhale actually does titanium and steel bikes. So it's cool to learn a bit about the process of how he goes about designing and manufacturing these badass bike frames. Let's get into it. Now, um, part of my issue is I've got a wrecked, a wrecked back. And just recovering from a a knee injury from last year, and I've barely ridden. But um, you know, it's like now things are like slowly getting back into into the swing of things. It's kind of nice. The reason I'm riding the bike I am right now is because my body's wrecked. Yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah, fifty-two years old. Yeah, is that the um, this most recent injury that you had? Like. Have you had any really bad injuries in the past? Like, I know you, uh, you know, you did a lot of racing and touring over the decades. Um, was there any bad injuries back then? Yeah, when like three broken pelvises, maybe four if you count a high school, traumatic high school incident. And, um, and then work my way up, up my body from, from there or down my body. Depends on how you want to work it. Was any of it uh, yeah. like permanent as far as um kind of just affecting your physical performance? Pelvis, yes. Yeah. Um then we got um got stuck in a ditch in a in my little van and in a place we shouldn't have been, and I was stupid enough to think that I could actually lift a rear quarter up whilst my um my friend um, who couldn't drive tried to drive us out and something just went pop. And that was me uh, basically destroying a disc in the middle of my spine, right between my shoulder blades. And that's kind of why my bike is set up the way it is right mm -hmm. now. And I've been hit by a handful of cars, um, all sorts of stuff. It's kind of a fascinating long list of, of breakages. And probably I'm like, yeah, the worst one was just basically being um just a random crash at, on a on a trail. And I fractured my sacrum and tore a bunch of stuff on my a lot of my hip flexor muscles. And that just that was kind of it. You know, it was kind of, well, my whole body doesn't like this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a so, week in the hospital trying to figure out what was going on. It was a tiny fracture, like a yes. maybe quarter inch long, and that was just putting pressure on my um, my femoral nerve, and it stopped me walking. Or you know, and that was a, probably a good thing because if I was walking, I'd have probably figured out that my hip flexors on both sides were in ragged kind of messes. So. So it so it took quite a bit for that to kind of heal to the point yeah, where you can actually it's still ride. not good because ligaments like that never completely heal. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm like, 
you look through my list of breakages, big bike crash, um, 1990, uh, fractured skull, um, concussion. Um, not long after that, I've been bang, landed, you know, slapped the dirt hard, fractured my right ankle. Um, let me see. Then nothing much until I moved over here. Because <laughs> the problem was I was a bike messenger for quite a few years in Manchester, as well as working at shops and all that kind of fun stuff. And just kind of, you know, I was a target, you know. I'm a dude riding a bike. And if you're driving a car around, obviously I'm the lowest form of life out there. So it doesn't matter if you take me out. So. Mm -hmm. And so when any of that happened, did it ever cause you to hesitate going back on the bike? Or did you always kind of feel like I got to just figure out how to do it now at this point? Or was there kind of uh, some some fear that um, came up with those incidents? It was a little bit. I mean, because, you know, there always is. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm from being a bike messenger. You know, I mean, I'm a lot more rowdy on a bike sometimes and, you know, when I'm pedaling at speed than I think some people are. But then on the other side of that, you know, riding with friends, I think, you know, I have this kind of, like, sixth sense of, like, I'm, I'm looking at what a driver's doing. And I can do, you know, that's increased dramatically over, like, the last, you know, I mean, like the last big incident I had, you know, basically I got hit by a, this is before me fracturing my sacrum, but I got hit by a car like a mile from my office when I was working for Felt and straight over the, over the hood of the car, landed on the road, tried to get up. And I, the only thing I could do, because I have pretty solid upper body strength, was through my bike, probably like 20 feet to the sidewalk, so no one to drive over it. You know, that's where my brain is. <laughs> save the bike, save the bike. Hospital can fix everything else. And must have been a pretty nice bike then, huh? It was um yeah, that was sentimental. Yeah, kind of. It was so it was a when I was at Felt, we had a bike called the F1X, cyclocross bike. And I put fenders and a rack on it, and I got a fork from Richie that had lowrider bosses on the front on it. So basically, lowrider rack on the front, fenders, and I joked one time to the um, sales team, "Oh, this is a new T1X." And so, what does that spell? Tour One X Bon Cross, and they all lost their minds because we'll never sell a touring bike. And it's like, there I am. And that was the bike that I got hit on. Luckily, nothing was wrong with that. It was just my body was mangled a little bit. Yeah. And so was that when you were still living over and working in England then? No. So that was so that was um, when I was working for Felt Bicycles. So, obviously, yeah, I think we probably should go back through. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm curious, you know. Um, I, I did a little research, you know, looked on your website and stuff, and uh, it looked like you grew up in the English Peak District. So I'm yep. curious, when you grew up there, you know, what what kind of got you into bikes? 
but also how does how did the bike culture how would you say the bike culture compared there versus now what you see you know over here so time wise obviously me I mean I was born in 1970 so that's a long ass time ago <laughs> it's really sad to think about it but um basically first memory of really riding a bike other than this little plastic three-wheel tractor that I had with a like front like I could pedal around the backyard was my mum the memory was my mum pushing me off down the road on this little kid's bike and she was the one who basically got me into riding never had training wheels or anything like that I uh, couldn't tell you how long it took me to learn how to ride, but I know full well that that was about the last time I ever remember ho her holding the back of my bike and pushing me off down the road. I mean, not saying that my dad wouldn't have done it. He just, he was busy. He had a like, full-time job. and My mom had a lot more time. And so that was probably, probably I was 44 or five years old at the time, maybe even younger than that. And from that, you know, even coming up to like 10 years old, my idea of fun was being about as feral a little kid as you can get, um, jump on my bike, and I'd be gone. You know, down to like the local little country park, riding the trails there, riding this little 20-inch wheel bike, cruising around, coming back. My dad would say, hey, you got a flat tire? And I was like, yeah, oh, well, I do. And he said, you can fix it. And basically, he kind of told me what to do. And that was like the first time I really got into bike mechanics was basically fixing my own flat tires, like nine or 10 years old. Um, then from there, I mean, I got a 700C bike, a Falcon road bike. Um, and... I was not nice to that bike, even in the slightest. My idea of fun was canal towpaths. And like, oh, if I take those stairs down that way, I can get out into the other part of the park. And I beat that snot out of that bike. It wasn't a mountain bike. This is, you know, like 1980. So, yeah, what, so what, was the width? what was the width on those tires? They were 27 one and a quarter, so 27 okay. inch. So what's that? That's like um like probably 30 millimeter tires. Okay. And I would go through a rim, a rear rim every couple of months. And either scrounge up some money from my parents or um attempt to do some little odd jobs so I could afford to buy a brand new wheel, because there was no fixing those wheels. But, you know, that's kind of like where I really got into riding. And more to the point of just like going out and just like exploring, going and seeing mm -hmm. stuff. And like, oh, hey, if I ride up here, I can get to that place. Or oh, what's down this road? You know, it's like. Yeah. Um, kind of, kind of putting people. the bike to the test and seeing what its limits were. Yeah, to a certain extent. But, you know, more of it was just seeing what I can see. Mm -hmm. And like. I, you know, not long after that, I mean, I got a really nice road bike. Um, and then, you know, mountain bikes appeared. 
And my dad basically went, we went down to the shop and he's like, you know, I'm going to buy you something. And there was this bike with these big ass tires on it. So it was like, that was probably 1985. And that was a, um, a Falcon, something or other. Couldn't tell you the name of it. Um, rode that for a year. Absolutely. I mean, it had cantilever brakes on it, friction shifting, six speed at the back. Maybe it's five, even five at the back. Beat the crap out of that with little like 1.8 tires, which is what everybody rode. Broke the frame. Spent my dad worked for Trading Standards, which basically they they dealt with shops who weren't being very nice to customers, and they wouldn't replace the frame under warranty. He talked to them. They got me a better frame, and I. The only reason I got rid of that frame is because it was rusted to hell. That's not long after I moved here. But it was just going and exploring and, like, loading that bike up. I put a rack on the back of it, sleeping in bag. I had a backpack. And I'd go, like, Truffle Boland or Lake District all the time. Mm -hmm. Do you you remember your, your very first time doing anything? like that uh like the first time you actually took your took equipment and camped out first time was probably 80s no 85 um because i went out to a place called hayfield which is in the peak district um rode out there crazy sleeping bag which was like four pounds i had this tent which we'd had for a long time which probably weighed eight or nine pounds in a backpack rode out there it was middle of summer so it's crazy hot like 70 degrees (laughs) (laughs) Um, a little tiny gas stove and cooked noodles and i mean it was it was a decent ride it's probably 25 miles each way and and just like it was a commercial campsite, you know, because I wasn't, my brain wasn't into the, oh, where do you go to places where you don't need to spend money at a campground? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I was just curious because, like, you went from, you know, pro- it sounded like doing more of this just day exploring on a bike in the yeah. beginning, right? And then to the point where now you're doing a, a multi-day thing, you know, packing equipment. Um you know, yeah, just kind of extending the exploration, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I'd been to Hayfield before. I mean, I'd hiked out there, so I knew the area. But then I went up through the hills and down a couple of trails, which now if you put a bike on there, you're probably going to get arrested because it's, you know, it's a footpath. And in the UK, there are very strict rules about where mm. you can and can't ride. Um, you know, parked up there, camped. I went, oh, this is pretty cool. And then it took a little while after that and actually bought myself a decent, um, I mean, I was 15. You know, so it's like everything's on a budget. Like, what can I, like, go to the pantry? What can I steal out of here that my parents won't notice I can use? And not thinking that they're all right. They will give you the stuff. And I, you know, very quickly turned that from like little trips out to there to you know my idea of a good weekend was 
doing like 120, 130 miles up to, up to the Lake District, bivy bag on the shore of Lake Windermere or one of the other big lakes, you know, grab fish and chips and a, a four pack of Guinness from the local store and just, and then, you know, sit there having some, you know, a glorious time on the, on the edge of the water. So. That's awesome. Was there, was there a specific um, moment when you did that where you just, um, you know, I'm sure as you did it, it kind of evolved and you continued to kind of fall in love with that as like a way to explore, but was there any specific um, memorable part you were, you remember that um, just made you kind of really fall in love to it and like knew that that's kind of what you wanted to continue to do? Cause I mean, at this point, you know, you've continued into the, you know, the bike industry. Um, but was there anything that was kind of, um, you know, a point or like a catalyst that kind of just, you know, continued that, that love or, or made your passion kind of stronger? There's one, so one time I was up in the Lake District, top of Angleton, um, which is a little tiny lake. Um, and a tarn up in the north means small lake or pond. I'd ridden along the ridge and I'd stopped and I was absolutely shattered. It was probably April and May. And so, you know, the sleep was coming in straight sideways. I got into this little kind of, um, kind of little kind of protected spot. I got, I said, you know, I've got to eat something, fired up my stove, you know, like instant mashed potatoes and freeze dried beef and stuff. And I made myself a little cottage pie and, you know, drinking a cup of tea and just sitting there and under just, it was kind of later in the day and like the, the sun just kind of just came in from out, you know, from behind the clouds and just lit that whole place up. And it was, you know, when you're standing there, I have to stand up and bask in this. It's actually warm. It's like, this is fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's like I can do this kind of stuff whenever I want. And, you know, like a lot of the people I grew up with, it's like, you know, they do, they do their club bike rides and then they go off to work. It's like, I'm the only person who's out here stupid enough to do this. That's just... I'm all right. It's like I this is kind of all I need as the universe. Yeah. And you know, loaded up, I'm feeling all warm inside because the food, I'm feeling warm, drop, drop back down into Ambleside camped. And that night the camp was probably one of the most terrible camps I think I've ever had. Because we had so much rain. My my tent was actually sloshing underneath. <laughs> So I packed everything up, went into the shower block because luckily it was that thing was still running. Uh, turned the shower on, warmed myself up, slept in the shower block, and I'm still going. This is a pretty good trip. It's like yeah. you're almost hypothermic. Yet your brain is still going. This is all right. And then you know, rode my way back to to Ashton, which is where I live, just outside of Manchester, and like and that kind of got me hooked on just. Not big adventures, but just adventures. Go. Yeah. Yeah. Finding time, fitting it in. I would, 
I would agree with, you know, your sentiment there because, um, you know, anyone that's done this kind of stuff, I think you have those moments where it's like you, you chose to get out there and you might have terrible weather at first, but because mm-hmm. you continued on, like you said, you'll have these times where you might be the only one out in a, in a given area. And then yeah. the sun comes out and it's beautiful and you have this moment and it's just cause you went out there through the storm that you're now on the other side of it and you get to have that experience and you might have all this wild stuff happen. But I think when you're done and you can get to a pub or you can kind of get comfortable in camp, like when you've kind of gone through some of that exactly. challenge, you come out on the other side of it and um, it makes everything else you know, that burger at the end or whatever, just, you know, taste even better. And that whole experience. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It can be crap food, but it's like, this is the best you've ever had. Um, So my best friend on the planet, Trevor classified as my brother, but because my mom wants to adopt him. Um, But we've been on trips like, like a few years back, I was over in the UK for Christmas and we went out into the woods, it's wet, it's cold, and we he slung his hammock up, slung my hammock up. We weren't going to stay, but then he lit a little fire, cooked steak sandwiches, which are about the best steak sandwiches I've ever had. Pulled out a, a little uh, clay flask filled with um, blackcurrant uh, rum. Mm-hmm. We had some beers, and it's like those are the things. It's like this was a terrible day to go for a bike ride you know we're walking through like ankle deep mud and then you know we get just hanging out under a tarp and yeah. you know that's what it's all about and it's that's kind of been one of my things it's trying to get that bottled up and shared with everybody else and obviously not everybody's going to want that but i think a lot more people would love that if they had got the chance to experience it. Yeah, exactly. I think Just it's, what? I think everyone can have that experience at their own level, but when you see how it affected you and that feeling you got, you're like, is there a way for other ones to realize? Cause a lot of times when you talk about, you know, how many miles you went and what you did, you'll have other people that are just like, that's crazy. I would never do that. Like, what yeah. are you doing? Um, but then when you're out there and you get to camp or a beautiful view or whatever it is, and you're standing next to your bike and, and a buddy or whatever, you're kind of thinking to yourself, like, I'm out here on my bike. Like, this is awesome. Like, I got here on my bike. Now we're mm-hmm. hanging out. And, you know, the bike is just another tool, you know, to get places. Yeah, it's, but exactly. but it's but it's still like, it just, it's really cool to be out in some of those places and know how you got there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've always, I mean, it's kind of, you know, even when, you know, I was back at Felt, um, maybe not, probably not before that, but that was one of the things that's like, you know, we're making these bikes to make people think that they need to go fast. Sucks. Right? Going fast sucks. I was a pretty decent time trialer. I am never going to even think about time trialing ever again. It's like, because... You get to the end, you throw up, and then you go home. Okay, great. What did you win? Yeah. A little tiny puppy bed. And did you, did you even see anything while you were speeding through it, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas 
the only so one of my all time still back in the UK, my all time favorite competition that I did. Um, so we had a Trail Quest and then the Polaris Challenge. And basically, if you don't know, um, but the UK is covered completely by these maps from um, Ordnance Survey, which is a governmental organization. And they are, um, brain's not working, like 20 kilometers by 20. And everything inside those has a grid square. So there is a coordinate, almost like you'd have with a GPS. And basically, you would look at that coordinate, you know, across the bottom and, you know, vertical and horizontal, and that would be a checkpoint. Um, I don't know if you have you ever seen orienteering where you'd run around and you'd clip a little mm, tag. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's, a, it's like that, but on bikes, but on a massive scale. And then you'd start off in the morning and there'd be a secret camp. The only way you could get to the camp is by starting that morning. And then you, your goal was to get as many points as you could. That, okay, that's about as good as you can get for a competition. Because honestly, most of the time, most people don't care about getting all the points. They just want to ride somewhere they've never ridden before. Like in the, we did the Lake District, we did um, Central Wales, which is in the west of England. Um, well, sorry, the west of the Great Britain. I'm going to get shouted at by um, by Welsh friends. It's like it's not part of England. <laughs> we we kicked you guys out. Um, and then doing like trail quest stuff down in Cornwall as well, where you're cruising around these little. It's like I had no idea that this 20 mile long dirt road even existed. And you're hammering along there. You get to checkpoint. You punch your little card. And then you look at the map, where are you going to go next? And, you know, that's, in my brain, that's about as good competition use as I would want to do. You know, like stage racing, mountain bike racing, all that kind of stuff. Nah. Go somewhere where I can actually carry a tent with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and when you, talk about, when you talk about even, like, you know, whether it's back roads, gravel roads, you know, I think there are people that lean into doing more of the mountain biking and off-road stuff just because they're wary of cars and they want to get away from yeah. cars as well. Um, but even if it's roads where you could drive, you know, there, people will still, you know, you can car camp, you can drive places, you could drive to mountain bike trailheads, you can mix it up, you can do a lot of that. Um, but it is a totally different experience when you bike it. And that's one thing I like yeah. is like, you know, even out in Eugene, when I would explore some of those roads i'd go out mohawk and some of the blm and uh national forest and stuff and yeah you can drive through it but when you when you bike through a lot of that it does you know just riding out in the forest for a day on your bike can feel like a whole adventure you know yeah I mean, you, you know even if you even if you do like 10 miles what you see in 10 miles is a complete different you know kind of perspective than you will obviously in a car you do if you're doing 30 miles an hour, that's gone, you know, like 20 minutes, whatever it is. If you're walking, you 10 miles, six miles into it, you're going, I wish I hadn't decided to do this. On a yeah. bike, you go, Yeah. Oh, this is kind of, you know, we can see things. We can yeah. you might realize you're going by a stuff. creek or something, and then you can stop and check out some spots. And then um there's yeah. even been plenty of times where I've done a ride like that 
and I noticed some things around town that I didn't even notice before. And then I can come back with the wife and dog for a picnic or something if I saw a cool spot or yeah. something, you know? So it's almost like you're scouting the area on your bike too, you know? Yeah, I did that today. I mean, I was pedaling through town and like, what is this like alleyway? And it was a dirt alleyway. You know, Eugene's filled with alleys. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, cruised along. I was like, this is kind of fun. And we, um, a good friend of mine who lives in town, we were talking about doing like an urban gravel race. And I'm like, no, urban gravel ride. Mm-hmm. Don't want to be racing. We just want to you know, go and yeah. show people things. Because, you know, it's like like everything on bikes and like the last, well, since bikes have been invented, you know, so late 1800s, it starts off as being this fun, relaxing, seeing the universe kind of thing. And all of a sudden, someone wants to put a label on it, number one. And number two, how can we race it? You know, there's, there's a, what was a brilliant podcast, not going to mention the name, helped the guy out when he started. It was about adventures, bike packing, and then all of a sudden, all the content was about racing. Mm-hmm. Racing, 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 racing. I was like, tell you one thing, 200 miles on a bike, and you're not sleeping, you're riding through the night. There's a, such a tiny percentage of the, of the people on this planet would be in, you would enjoy that. However, 200 miles over a few days, I say, hey, there's this brilliant waterfall. We went skinny dipping in this lake. We went, we camped by the side of this place and the sunrise was amazing. That's, you know, kind of, well, number one, that's what I've been trying to cultivate. And number two, that's, you know, kind of what we need more of. Yeah, and I would agree. I mean, you're talking to the right, you know, this podcast, Bike Camp and Chill, right? And I think Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of been my thought as well. My mentality here is you have have some great content and channels out there um, that are, it is inspiring to see people racing and, and doing that side of it. But, but like you said, there, you know, what percentage of people can actually do that? And, yeah. you know, there's also, there's also danger in that or people that overdo it. Um, there's, you know, it can cause some debate and controversy around how they do it. But I think there's this whole category of people that could just get out there and do a couple of miles and you could, you could bike a very small percentage of the day and then just hang out most of the day and camp mm-hmm. or whatever. And I think just, just finding ways to get outside more and show people that you don't have to be doing this 200 mile two day, you know, race thing at all. Um, and so I think it is about finding that, that balance and, and showing people that, um, you know, there, there is a chill side of the pack, right? It's not all about, um, being an ultra endurance athlete. Because, um, you know, okay, so I chatted to, I can't remember the name of the woman who was, she was, I mean, one of the fastest bikepackers out there back when I was at, and bikepacking was just starting mm-hmm. when I was still at Belt. And it's kind of one of the last things I was there. And, you know, we were talking, and it's like, you know, so you did this ride. How much sleep did you have? And I went, 
you know, I'm thinking, calculating out. And so I do this over two days. I probably, if I was at the time, obviously a lot thinner than I am now, a lot faster than I am now. I still wasn't fast. And she said, no, I wouldn't sleep. I'd say the weight wouldn't even take, I'd just take an ultralight bivy bag and that's it. And I'm going, that's pain. It's just pain. And it's like, you got, you're going to, like, to a place you've never been before. And you're just you're not enjoying it. Basically, you're in, enjoying hurting yourself. And there's there's um, there's a category of people that like that. Usually involves whips and things, but it's like no, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like go out and just enjoy enjoy. We're not here to to torture ourselves. Yeah, I. Uh... I I posted a video a few years ago when me and my cousin did the stagecoach 400 and we did, the, we did that in seven, we did that in seven days and I'm, I'm pretty sure you you've done it. So I'm curious, um, your thoughts on it, but, uh, we did it in seven days and that was probably one of the first videos I posted. I just, I just like having fun with, um, you know, recording video along the way, show people what the, yeah. what the route kind of looks like, but maybe not necessarily show every single thing you want there to still be some surprise and adventure. So I, I kind of, you know, keep it with that in mind. Um, but I remember getting comments on that video where, you know, lots of people race that route and there had to have been a few of those racers that commented, they watched the video and they would say things like, wow, this is awesome. I actually get to see some of it because half the time it yeah. was in the dark when I wrote it, you know, mm -hmm. cause they're just riding through the night. And so yeah, like you're saying, it it that does blow my mind that you could be in a whole new area, uh, you never been, and you may not have really got to see it. You didn't get to savor it, that's for sure. Um, so, you know that. Yeah. You know that is just a totally that, different experience. Exactly. I mean, the only thing I'm mean, talking to you know a bunch of people who raced and raced the stagecoach. It's like oh. Best thing about that was the burrito when I dropped down into the valley. It's like, but what about going down through Sheep Canyon? God, that place is glorious. I went, she, oh, yeah. Uh, anyway, I was going through that, and I wanted to get down to the, the, the convenience store before it closed at 5 p.m. It's like, well, just, I, 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 those things don't compute in my brain. It's like, like I've got enough food with me. I'm going to stay at the... Um, the little cabin up at the top of Sheep's Cannon, or I'm going to do those kind of things. So it's like you're missing out on, especially there. You know, you drop into the in, into the flatlands and you're heading north in the desert. There, there's so much. I mean, it's especially if, it, if you're doing it early in the year. Mm -hmm. You know, like April, kind of March or April time. You got all the flowers there. You got, you know, some. You know, the art when you're dropping into um, Anza Borrego itself. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And it's like, you know, no, I'm not riding this at night. I want to be a part of, be kind of embedded in, in nature. You know, I want to be part of this. Um, but, like, the whole of that ride, like, you know, going over um, San uh this San Jacinto, brain's not working. Some of the bigger peaks, um, you know, just like 
you know, walking, and then just sitting down, having a, you know, a drink, you know, water, not beer, because yeah. we're desert. Um, and it's like the scenery is stunning down there. I mean, I'm a, out of everything, I'm a. If you if you can't give me something like the Truffle Boland in the north of England, then right after that is a desert. I'm 100% a desert dweller, you know, which is funny for a big pasty white guy. Um, but is that also because it kind of, you know, contrasts with where you grew up? A little bit. I mean, plus it's those endless expenses. Mm-hmm. Um, so I rode, so back in 2000, I rode down to um, La Paz in Baja following a little, some of the bits which were now on the uh, Baja Divide. And it's like, you know, you get past, like you get south of San Felipe and it's like nothing. And it's amazing. You know, you've got these, you're on the, um, they just finished one of the big main roads. I think that's the, uh, the three. But I was like, you know, that's too easy. And I'm riding basically like dirt roads and you get passed every half an hour by some, you know, a group of guys going to work on the local farms and their little Honda Accord uh, on these rough dirt roads that are used for off-road racing. And there's nothing, there's cactus, there's tumbleweed, there's like, it's this vision out of a, like a, a John Houston kind of um, cowboy movie kind of thing. I think that's the right guy I'm thinking of. But that kind John of Wayne. stuff. Um, I was thinking more direct, but yeah, John Wayne as well. Yeah, any yeah. of the, any of those, any of the yeah, Johns. Yeah. And it's just there's something wild about it, and it's just to be alone, away from any civilization. Like even in the UK, you know, if you, you can get to a place. It's hard on foot. I mean, I, I ran the Pennine Way, which goes from um, Carlisle all the way down, and that was hard. You know, basically fast packing, lightweight backpack on foot. You're not seeing anything. On a bike, you can do it most of the way. And you can do, you know, obviously, you know, you can do so much more and see so much more at a better pace. And that's the same thing in Baja, you know, it's like, you can travel through these places at a perfect speed and see, you know, like lizards, snakes, mm-hmm. type stuff that you would never normally see um, or you'd be dreading because, you know, you're running out of water and because you, you, you're on foot. And, you know, that's the kind of, you know, but you're also away, so far away from anything that... In, Shows you any form of civilization. Yeah, yeah. You've got two lanes, you know, basically, you know, double track in the dirt. That's it. And then you come around a corner in Baja, and all of a sudden, it's like, what's this ch- mission doing here with this huge church? I was following a dirt road, and then you, you realize, no, that was actually the main road. You came in on the main road, and you. Um, you know, the other beautiful thing about being on a bike versus a car is like you're riding into town and some vendor waves at you and you turn in and it's tacos, a couple of Cokes, and you're 
happy. Whereas if you're in a car, you drive into that and you go, okay, cool. Take some photographs and drive off. And that's happened all over the place. Like we're touring in Taiwan, a little bit in China, um, you know, Europe, you know, just like you find these places. Mm-hmm. And out of those places that you've ridden, do you have a favorite region or a place that you would even go back? Or do they kind of all have their own, you know, different things um, that, you know, to like about the area? They're all, they all are about the same. Um, I, I mean, I would love to spend a bit more time in China. I mean, that was kind of more of a, I mean, I've traveled a lot to China for work. Um, Taiwan, amazing. I mean, like going down the East Coast, um, that was more of a, I'm in in Taiwan for two weeks and I have like two days of work and I just went, screw it. And I was on my, I'm on my 130 mil trail bike, which is the absolutely worst bike to have in Taiwan. But this one folded up into my travel bag, that and a backpack and just and spent a week riding down to the south of, of the island. Brilliant place, crazy hot, crazy humid, crazy wet. Um, I think, I mean, if anything, I would probably, I would go back to Baja and Harpy. I mean, I guided tours down there for Camp Polo, which is an off-road company with Jeeps. And since then, I've learned a lot more about Baja. And I would just like to, two wheels, pedal south of the border and just like, avoid like kind of the fancy Baja divide kind of route and go and see some of the, the other odds and ends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Plus the people down there are amazing. Food's amazing. And you can camp anywhere. That's awesome. And uh, did, did you ever go um, to any beaches along that? Um, did you go along the coast at all or were you a little bit more inland? Um, yeah, so most of it was, so in the north, I was in the, um, in the mountains, basically south of Takati, from Takati down to, uh, I can't remember the name of the town, and then from there, Valle de Trinidad, out to the ocean on the west coast, and all the way down until, um, just, um, south of uh, San, Santo Tomas and then cut over to San Felipe and then all the way down the east coast. You know, so you've got these, this cold ocean current on one side, which is amazing and just like glorious. And then you go over the other side and you're on these beaches, which are, you walk into the water and realize it's 80 degrees and it's like, yeah. this is, uh, I wish it was, it was fresh water and I could have a real bath in this. And, and then basically all the way down to La Paz and then bus to Cabo and took a bus home. Mm-hmm. So did you do the, I guess what you'd call the official Baja Divide route, or did you do a little bit of a variation off that? It was, uh, so this is, um, the official Baja Divide route came out in like 2015, I think, 2016. This was 10 years before that, or oh, 15 years before that. Okay. And so it's a little bit before. And yeah, back when it was just a, some plans and you had to kind of wing Well, I think even before that, because um, Jonathan and Lael, when they put that together, you know, it's like 
talking to almost everybody who'd be been down to Baja and and you know really talked you know kind of bike touring down there yeah and there's been you know as with evident there's massive changes in uh infrastructure down there there are bike shops down there um you know you can you go to San Felipe you can go and buy you know replacement parts for your specialized e-bike 25 years ago it's like I'm sure there was a bike shop there, but it's a guy with a hammer and a and something can you and a crescent wrench and he can yeah, fix yeah. up. So Baja's brilliant. I've never been to Mexico or a lot of those places, but um, you know, even just going out to do the stagecoach and some of the other ones that I've done, you know, it's mm-hmm. uh it's been cool just being able to see these different landscapes and you go into these different little towns and, um, you know, I like to do just enough planning where I don't really know what to expect. So you kind of, you know, you don't really know what you're going to come across exactly. And, um, yeah, it's always just, uh, fun to kind of have, um, those different flavors, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the advantage that a bicycle gives you. On foot, you've kind of got a plan because you've got to. You can only carry so much stuff. On a bike, you can get away with going, oh, I've got to drag, you know, ride another 10 miles before I can get re, you know, refueled, restocked, everything. And then I can camp somewhere here. So you, you can still camp as if you're walking. In a car, you've kind of got to, oh, I've got to be, I'm not sure if I can park here. I'm not sure if this is an official campsite. You know, because it's not like you can pull off into a, you know, sleep in a ditch, which is kind of one, one of my yeah. favorite things. Yeah, you can like, be a little bit more agile with it. Yeah. Stealthy and, you need and, to be. So, you know, you've got the, that perfect balance between, you know, speed and and hide in a ditch kind of um, mentality about stuff. And yeah, I've slept in plenty of ditches. Because it's like that. I'm proud of it. Oh yeah, hell yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. I've got, I've got a Gore-Tex baby bag, and I'm not afraid to use it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ugh. Cool. Well, I want to jump into what Pinhale is all about. Pinhale Bicycle what? Company. What is Pinhale? Oh, that's that's a question. Wow. Well, and and uh, so you know, I saw on your website that uh, you officially started in California in 2014. So interested uh-huh. in, in how that started, you know, your thinking process there, but also, uh, where, where'd the name Pinhale come from? So easy question first. So Pinhale is, it's a little village in just over the water from Plymouth in the Southwest of England in Cornwall called Penhale. Well, actually hire Penhale. It's a hamlet. I'm not sure exactly what the definitions are between village, hamlet. <laughs> I think you know, there's some medieval thing there, but that's where my parents live. Um, and I lived there for a little while when I moved down that way. And for a long time, we had um, this joke that the workshop at the top of the garden, when my dad was still alive, he had, he'd go up there. Um, work on his various projects, like his 1930s motorbike and all the other stuff. And we joke that that was Penhale Engineering. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking for a name for um, 
for my bike company after I got laid off from felt. I'm going, I have no idea. What the, you know, what the hell am I going to call this company? I mean, it's like, this is, I need something. And it, um, I just kind of stuck on Penn Hill Bicycle Company. Yeah, that, that would be pretty good because it means, I mean, it means something to me. Easily trademarkable. And, mm -hmm. you know, it has a really good story behind it, you know, because, you know, it's like a, a family connection. So that's kind of where we got the name from. And the, you know, as far as why, um, so I'm, I've, I've worked in the bike industry on and off since, well, not on and off. Um, you know, swept floors at a bike shop in the UK. Um, worked with a frame builder for a little bit. Worked tech support and customer service for um, one of the kind of cool kid um, manufacturers. Well, uh, sorry, cool kid distributors in the UK. You know, we did haze brakes on one side through to Middleburn, all of that kind of stuff. And whilst I'm doing that, it's like, you know, mountain bike racing, mountain bike racing, mountain bike racing. That's fun. But whilst I was doing it, you know, I, I sat down with a friend and went, I want to build a touring bike. And he went, okay, great. And it's like cantilever brakes and 700C wheels with narrow tires. I'm like, no. 26-inch wheels. I said, take a 2.2 knobby. And at the time, this was um, really pre-disc brakes, high front end, drop bars. And he went, this is stupid. No one's going to buy it. So he built it. And a lot of people kind of liked it. And that kind of, I mean, for me, it was perfect. It was a, a really kind of a, it was kind of an aggressive geometry for a mountain bike. Well, that wasn't his point. You could load it up with panniers, front and rear. And so I went through and designed that. We built it. And I just wasn't in a position where I could do anything with it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of fast forward to, you know, when I started Penhill, well, when I was laid off, I felt it was like, my brain goes, that is kind of the bike. I think I need to do. It's mm -hmm. can take drop bars. It can take flat bars. It's at the time, was there not really much of a mixed terrain touring bike on the market, would you say? There are a few small companies, little companies who were doing stuff. But for the most part, you know, everybody was like specialized, Trek, Giant, GT, Felt. It's like, well, no one's gonna want a bike like that. That's a hybrid. Mm -hmm. No, and it, you know, Surly were kind of coming along with their bikes, you know, like the long haul trucker and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I looked at when, you know, like what else was out there, and it's like, I'm going to make something that's kind of unique. You know, 29 inch wheels and tires were, you know, kind of everywhere at that point. And so, you know, it's like, I'm going to build something that'll take a 2.2 inch tire. Or something smaller with fenders, it'll take every bolt on part you you could care for. You know, like a um, like racks front and rear, fenders front and rear. You can put like you know, like an everything cage wherever you want. 
at least three bottle cages. Um, and actually, on the original bike, you could mount five bottle cages. And, you know, that's, that was the kind of the bike that I wanted to build. And so basically, I just drew it up. Um, it took a lot longer than I wanted to to get it actually built at the factory I wanted. Um, but that was, I knew that that's kind of what I wanted to do. And the whole goal isn't to make, for me, is not to make money. I'd like to make money because I have a mortgage to pay, but it's to make the bike that most people really should be riding. You know, you, everybody out there is so caught up with the marketing of this, the marketing of that. And, you know, that's kind of one of the philosophies that I've stuck with is like, this bike will do 98% of the riding that you want to do. How often do you go to a bike park? Oh, I go there once a year. You can rent a bike. How often do you race a Criterium? Well, I thought about doing it once. Pretty sure you can find someone who will let you borrow the bike or put like narrow tires on. Everything else, ride this bike. And it's been, I mean, I'm not saying it's a battle to get people to, you know, get kind of get through the marketing of, you know, the, the BS that all these big brands have. But the people who have, you know, the gypsy go, this is the bike I ride all the time. I mean, I have a fancy new titanium bike out there, and I should have ridden it today when I went for a ride. And I went, ah, screw it, just jumped on my old gypsy and just hammered through some of the trails. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. It's like, this is a bike you can ride 98% of the time. It's affordable. I mean, the goal was always an under $800 bike. Sorry, under $800 frame. You can build it up with whatever you want. If you have an old 29er, and you're, um, you know, kind of hanging up on the rafters. Take the parts off, put them on that. It'll all fit. Um, you can lock it up anywhere because it's got nickel plating. Um, that it, it will rust if you don't take care of it. You know, the rust will come through the plating in certain places. But, hey, do you have a bit of scotch bright? You go, eh. But WD forty and it's good. That bike will last you another twenty years. And that was, that was a steel cool. frame, right? Yeah, so it's uh, Japanese chromoly. Um, we sourced that out of a little company in Japan. It's all custom butted for our needs. Um, the the cool bit is the frame builder is a little family frame builder, and they're in China. They're a Taiwanese-owned company, but it's there's three welders they have there. Um, super nice people. I mean, I, I got invited to the wedding of one of the the frame builders, well, one of the welders. Mm -hmm. It's like that that kind, and he was marrying the sales girl who was the daughter of the guy who owned the place. That it's that kind of company, and I you know there's. That's what made me feel a lot better about building bikes in China. Because obviously there's all the, you know, the political side of things. There's the big business side of things. But no, these are family. They're really yeah. cool at what they do. And I've known them for a really long time. It's like, no, 
I'm going to work with these guys. And when you're yes. when you're getting to connect with them on an individual level like that, I mean, you're getting to see yeah. it firsthand. Yeah. Yeah, like walking over the um, um, the border between Hong Kong and China, and the girl who owns the company's sitting there. With, she drove a taxi down to pick me up, and she goes, "Hey, do you want do you want hot dogs and some beer on the way?" We pull into Shenzhen, and we're like, "There, you know, have some food," and then we go go down to our little factory and hang out there. And it just feels like you know, we're all family. I mean, unfortunately, uh, COVID kind of put pay to that, and they're all back in Taiwan now, but that's a whole different yeah, level yeah. of stress. Um, with the the Japanese chromoly, um, is that, you know, is that a different, um, I guess, what would be the way you would say it? Um, the alloy or the, um, that might be more with like aluminum, but the, uh, just the, the ratio of the steel, does it, is there something uh, about that source or about that, uh, the way that that steel is manufactured or designed that's a little bit different than other, um, steel that's used like on other steel bikes, or is it kind of a similar um, so forty so regular chromoly, you would classify that as forty-one thirty. Um, brain's not working right now on the the breakdown. Um, you know, between chromo, uh, chromium and all of the other, it's a, every piece of steel that you get is an alloy. Mm-hmm. Iron is the base thing. Then you you break it out from there. Japanese materials typically are far, number one far more um, pure. They start off with a pure base metal and a pure alloy. They're more traceable. They are a lot more accurate. Um, none of it's um, seam welded. So quite often what you'll have, there's two ways of making a, a, a tube, a, a piece of steel tube. Number one is taking a piece of flat rolled steel, folding it up and welding it. Great. Is that the strongest? It can be if it's done really well. True Temper do that. And that's, you know, True Temper steel is some of the best on the planet. Most of it is not, though. The Japanese uh, maker I use, basically, they take a piece of billet steel, and in the same way that Reynolds do, they pierce a hole through that. And then it's drawn and it's pierced and rolled. So that is one. Uh, basically one continuous piece of steel that's never had a joint welding in it. And they can roll the internals of it. They can put the butts and, you know, the butts where the thicker sections versus the thinner sections. They can put that wherever you realistically need. And mine are a little heavier duty. So the butts closest to the weld are a little longer. Um, and that adds a little bit to the stiffness, but doesn't add anything, you know, anything really much to the weight. Um, and it just means that frame will last a lot longer. And, you know, the Japanese are a lot more, um, it's, uh, I'm trying to say this without being sounding, <laughs> um, it's, it, it's a lot more. Like a um, perfectionist kind of? 
Yeah, but, yeah. Well, number one, the Japanese are perfectionists. Yes, the Japanese are yeah. perfectionists on anything. But it's, I trust them a little bit more to do exactly what I need. Um, there's no gray areas. Um, mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there are places in China that I, I mean, I trust with my life on stuff. Um, but the people who are making the new gritstone titanium, yeah, they, they're flawless. I mean, I've showed that to some very, very high-end frame builders over here and say, we can't touch that. Whereas, you know, there's always going to be a time where you, you go out and source a product. Um, and you go, well, these welds are a little kind of ropey. This material is a little off. Like the original Surleys, um, they use their original chromoly and it's brilliant. I still have a one by one that I got in nine, you know, like the first year of the Surly one by one. Thing is amazing. Welds aren't brilliant. I know the factory did it and I know why they're not brilliant, but that thing's never gonna fall apart. You know, it's that perfect kind of mm -hmm. You know, kind of grocery store, kind of beer run bike. Yeah. And I guess um, there's some margin, right? As far as like the tolerance or margin for error in some ways. Yeah. There there is. I mean, there's a, a tolerance in manufacturing, whether it's on alignment, whether it's on material properties, um, things like weight, geometry, all of that. Um the worst thing, honestly, is like allowing certain things like welding to go through QC without being, you know, kind of properly checked. Because if there's one thing that'll kill a bike frame, it's bad welds. Mm. You know, typically the material itself, you can kind of get away with it. You know, it's like it's not going to crack. But it's if someone's cooked it when they welded and that's you know, why you got to go with someone you trust, which is why I trust my guys. Yeah. Well, so I'm interested. Um, I do want to talk about that new gritstone titanium <laughs> frame. Um, but I think one good way to lead into that would be when you talk about getting into frame building and now you've been doing it, you know, for a while, um, you know, already have quite a few under your belt um, as far as models go. Um, is there, I, I, there probably, you know, there for sure was a learning curve, I would imagine, to doing the frame building. Um, yeah. It sounded like you had, you know, some experience uh, with some of that manufacturing and stuff. But could you talk a bit about the learning curve and, and getting to now the grit stone and maybe kind of walk us a bit through, you know, how do you go from design to production? Like, what, is, what does that kind of look like? So, you know, as far as like, you know, how I got into it was basically hanging out with a frame builder in the north of England. Um, and him telling me, you know, I'm going, this is what I want. And he said, great. There's a milling machine over there. You know, basic geometry. You need to put this milling bit up against the end of the tube and mitre this. And then you know, between the two of us, we brazed that that road frame, which is still hanging out there. Brilliant frame. Don't try and ride it. 
It's a it's it's a brilliant time trial frame. It's just a little too flexy it's, for its, it's own nice bit. to look at. Oh yeah, it's glorious to look at. Actually, I mean, it, I did ride that a lot. I mean, yeah. I probably got a few thousand miles on that bike, but um, you know, a lot of it's like you know, obviously, you get the inspiration. Um, and like for me, the inspiration is always something that's a little left or right of center. Um, and so when I started um, playing around with frames, so like the um, the tour steel twenty six inch wheel steel touring frame that I built, very simple. For me, it was just sitting down, drawing out what I wanted in. Um, yes, it was pen and paper because I didn't have CAD at that time, um, like mid-90s. But this is what I need. I know what the geometry needs to be. And then sitting down with my friend who was a frame builder, and between the two of us, mitering the tubes, well, selecting the tubes, mitering the tubes, um, welding and brazing, kind of simple. When you move towards where I'm at now with Penhill, it's the same kind of thing, just on a very different scale. So obviously, for me, um, I have the idea, you know. So I, you know, okay. So you come to me saying, "Hey, I've got this idea for a bike." And I'm like, "That's a great idea." We put this bike down on whether it's in AutoCAD, whether it's in BikeCAD. BikeCAD is brilliant, um, you know, or you know, any of. of put stuff in 3D sometimes as well, it's more complex. We'll come up with an idea that we know we want. From there, I have to decide, okay, so I know X number of frame builders in Asia. Can I get somebody to build me a prototype? And how much is it going to cost? I mean, I, luckily, having done this for enough, you know, enough years, I know enough frame builders over there that could probably do it. If not, I have a trading company who's based in Taiwan who can shop an idea around. And then they will go, here's a quote. Guy X can build it. Mr. Chen down in Tainan can build it. Great. Tell me about what he, his capabilities are. Um. Being, you know, I don't want to just jump into somebody I don't know. I mean, I have guys I trust. And from there, we build up ourselves a prototype. We test it. And we basically, you know, shop it around as far as, you know, hey, Dallas, you came up with this idea. You've written it. Do you think this is great? Don't let me kind of interfere with your thought process on this. Do you like riding this bike? Does it do what you think it should do? And then from there, you say, no, we need to, you know, you're missing one bottle bus. It would be perfect if we had this. You go back, build another prototype, and move forward from there. And it's the same in obviously in every industry. You know, it's a lot easier in bicycles, honestly, because you know, you've got a guy like me who's got you know, friends and family in, in Asia who can talk to somebody. You know, rather than hey, you want to make a new laptop, well, good luck. I don't want to get got down, you know, that road of stuff. But, you know, then we, we'll build a second prototype. 
honestly, though, that's the easy bit. It's when you come to, great, we've got a, a good idea here. How are we going to sell this thing? Because honestly, you know, the marketing side of things, um, it's not even necessarily that it takes money. It's just knowing the right people and moving that out to the right people because that bike might be the most amazing thing on the planet. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, the Gypsy, when I launched that, probably like that, is that 98% of the time, that's the bike everybody should be riding. Yeah, but uh, I'm not a millionaire. I'm actually kind of, kind of glad I'm not a millionaire, but that's another discussion for another time. But, you know, that's kind of, you know, that's, it's a, it's a lot simpler than a lot of people think, mm-hmm. but you have to have those connections. And without stuff, is it is it uh are they built to order or do you actually have to like uh do you order like a a certain volume up front or um don't quote me on this but most um I have because I work with someone who's a family friend I can get whatever I need but most of the times it's like you're filling a container like a twenty foot container of bikes. Mm-hmm. Couple of frames, and unfortunately, that's and that's all paid up front. Um, you so, know, you're, so you're you kind have, of thinking about the amount of you know who's who's the demographic of customers, what mm-hmm. would demand look like? You know, we're going to promote this, market it in some way, and so you know, okay, I got to prepay, fill this container, and so you also got to figure out like the size ratio, right? Of that you're going to get, yeah, and kind of do all of that, and then kind of get it over here and then sell it from yeah, there. Yeah, it's, it, it's exactly that. I mean, the hardest thing for me was thinking no one's going to want an extra large uh, gypsy frame on like the last run that I did. It took me forever to sell the mediums and the smalls. Larges sold out very quickly and all the extra larges went in the first couple of days. <laughs> and it's like, where are all these tall people and realizing that the you know, apparently I built a frame that fits guys. I mean, I'm 6'3". Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, apparently I'm the only guy out there who's building bikes that fit big people. Um, you know, which is you know, kind of where I, I jumped over into the grit stone, building the grit stone the way I did. And it's, you know, that kind of, no one ever knows. You know, it's like, you know, if you look at the demographics of the USA, you should be between five foot ten and six foot tall. Apparently, everybody who wants my bike is six foot to six foot three. So, my question for you would be: now, now's your your uh, chance to kind of, you know, sell this thing. Why? Why is the Gritstone kick ass? Let's let's talk about that. What What's so cool about this bike? Who's it for? Uh, what was the idea here? And uh, yeah, let's let's talk about the features and just kind of what this thing's all about. So Gritstone itself, it's originally that was going to be the new Titanium Gypsy. Um, I am very have to be very honest and say that I wasn't quite aware of all of the connotations having a name like Gypsy. Um, 
a very dear friend of mine was born in a in a horse drawn cart in Norfolk Broads, and she was well, she was she still is a, a gypsy, and quite happy to say to everybody that I had no idea on how passionate some people were about the negative connotations of that word. So, number one, I came up with a new name, which is Gritstone. I like it. And it's Gritstone is, if you go to the north of England, it's, if you're a climber, you climb on Gritstone. It's hard. It's tough as nails. You All the mills in the milled grain in the north of England used um, a millstone grit, also known as Gritstone. So that's kind of where the name came from. And so I wanted to basically build, you know, something that would go along the lines of that, you know, kind of like tough as nails bike. But I also wanted to make the ultimate bike in that area. And so I set to, I mean, the geometry is almost the same as the original gypsy frame. Half a degree shallower head angle, just because I wanted to, Relax it out a little bit because, hey, if you are going to be one of those people who decide you're going to race and be riding through the night at two o'clock in the morning, this bike is relaxed enough for you can take your hands off the handlebars and not worry about it, even though you can't see where you're going. Uh, but basically, down two was beefed up a little bit because titanium, you need a little extra torsional stiffness. And I don't care what anybody says, there's no such thing as top tube stiffness on a bike. Top tube flex, but it's all controlled by the down tube. You know, basically, you go like this, that tube that goes that way is the torsional member in it. I also wanted something that was kind of cool and clean without compromising some of my ideas so like didn't want to have full housing for the rear derailleur all the way um to the rear derailleur stop i wanted to have hoses internally but i wanted to be kind of creative about it because i still i don't want to have you know like a fully integrated like you'll see a lot of like the newer carbon can't remember the company is making a carbon bike packing bike, and it's everything runs through the head, through the stem and the headset. That doesn't help anybody if someone's got to fix something. So I wanted to make it workable, you know, so you could, if you, know, you have a problem on the trail, you can fix it. So basically, all the cables run down through the down tube. Designed a bottom bracket with a little door, trap door on the bottom. And all the hoses and cables run underneath there, hidden out of the way, but they're separated out from where the bottom bracket is. So if you actually take the bottom bracket out, and the crank on the bottom bracket out, you can't see the cables. They run internally. The only cable that's a little weird is there's an internal dropper routing which comes out of the top of the down tube and into the bottom of the seat tube with a little, you know, either a hose or, um, you know, a piece of cable, um, unless if you're going to do, like, wireless or whatever. 
Um, it had to have adjustable dropouts for chain stay length. So if you break a Rotorella, you can turn it into single speed easily. You also have to be able to run 135 quick release. You have to be able to run 142 and 148 boost on the same frame. The frame has to be able to take at least a 2.4 tire at the back. On the fork, you have to be able to match that or go bigger. I mean, you can actually go to 27.5 by three on the front quite comfortably. And with an option of a regular fork or a boost fork. And, you know, time of purchase, you can pick whichever one you want. Yes, it's titanium. Yes, it's reasonably light, but it's not designed to be light light. Because the problem is every single other manufacturer out there, look on the web, well, you talk to them and say, oh, you can ride this. You look at their website and they go, oh yeah, 225 pounds max. What they don't tell you is that includes rider. It includes your luggage, your water, and the bike. So I'm 280 pounds. Yeah, because I mean, it's all up weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of these frames can deal with it. But they basically, if you go over that and um, have an issue, who's going to cover that under warranty? Mm -hmm. Yep. Liability. Oh, my. Yeah. And that was kind of my conversation with a couple of um, manufacturers. I was down at Sea Arthur and I said, it says 225. And they went, yeah. It's like me. I can't ride your bike. Then. Well, well, you bring up a good point, though, is like at that point. Uh, if you're including because I don't think people are really thinking that much for one, are you looking at the weight limit for two? OK, you could you could not even be that heavy of a person. Yeah. Um, but then now you're riding a fully loaded bike. You know, it, it seems like it actually wouldn't be too difficult to hit um, that threshold. Exactly. I mean, like, um, what's a, a, a water bottle weigh, like a pound and a bit? Um, so even, so when I was racing, when I moved over here, I'd come off a, a year of doing stupid bike rides and races. I weighed 185 pounds. Okay, I'm going to buy myself the lightest titanium bike packing rig out there, 25 pounds. So I've got 15 pounds that I can load that bike up with camping gear and all of the other stuff. And it's just not going to work. And so that's you know one of the most important things for me is to build a bike that I can ride. Yeah. And and like you're at what's the average current um adult male's weight in the US is something like 195, 200 pounds. Yeah. So basically, most people in the United States who want to buy a bike, who are not racing it, cannot ride any of these bikes. And that's that was my goal. Mm -hmm. And same thing with the new steel version of it as well. The steel version will actually take quite a lot more. It won't weigh a lot more because I've been, um, been very creative with some of <laughs> the new tubes. So... Do you uh do you know the weight limit? Is there do you do testing or simulations to know what what is the weight limit of your titanium 
frame then? So titanium frame will take 350 pounds. Okay. And that's rider and gear, not including the bike. Okay. Um, and then the steel frame will probably take another 50. The, the steel frame, the steel gritstone, again, flipping over the name from uh, Gypsy to Gritstone, um, that's, that's that world to a world bike packing kind of bike. Um, if you want to go any heavier than that, a bike I've been holding in my back pocket for a while called the Vagabond. Um, last time I was riding in Baja, that was a bike I rode. I just couldn't justify bringing it to market with you know, the time everybody was fat bike crazy. Mm -hmm. um, that one will take, you could load that thing up to like 450 pounds quite comfortably. And it's still like a six and a half, seven pound frame. You know, it's like, it's like surly kind of um, whatever the new mid-level surly touring bike is. It's that kind of weight. Okay. And so um, what would you say, you know, having a titanium version and a steel version? Um, I'm kind of curious this. I, I usually ride steel. I think titanium always looks cool and I've, mm -hmm. I've, I've thought it'd be awesome to have a titanium bike at some point. Um, it is usually quite a bit more expensive. Yeah. Um, what would you say are the main, you know, pros and cons between picking something titanium versus steel when it comes to a bike like this? So, I mean, for me, the biggest thing is always going to be, if I'm if I want a world tour bike, if I want a bike packing bike, I can ride around the world for the rest of my life. I'm buying titanium. Um, if I am buying something for everyday use, probably going to go with steel. Um, I I there's always this thing that you know, and Surly, Salsa, all these steel brands have always come up with. Well, you can get it fixed anywhere. No, you cannot. If you can find me a guy in the middle of, of nowhere in Mexico who can TIG weld back, uh, you know, any, any damaged part on your chromoly steel frame, I'll give you 100 bucks right now. Because it's, you cannot just fix a, a steel frame with a, you know, with a, a stick welder. It's not that easy. And um, so go with something that has got a lot more ductility and durability long term, which is titanium. It's not as stiff. Um, and the, you know, one of the downsides to titanium is you're not going to load it up in the same way because you get out of the saddle with panniers and you'll see, you know, the frame will flex a bit more. Um and it, which is, you know, kind of, you know, that's where steel comes into its own. And steel's abusable. But, you know, if, if you can save yourself three pounds on a frame. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. With the steel, too, I know that is something that has come up quite a bit. I mean, steel does have this reputation to be, you know, extremely fixable wherever you are in the world. So I am mm -hmm. curious about that when you say, you know, if, if, Kind of what I've heard, um, you know, some people say is like, you know, steel is really reliable and it's you're probably not even going to have anything break. But 
if you did, you do want to know, you know, you might have an option. So if, if you did find somebody that could weld it, let's say you're out in the middle yeah. of nowhere and somehow you come across that, is it more that, okay, maybe somebody in a pinch could weld it where you might be able to get to the next place to, to, you know, get a different bike or something, or is it, is it more like it, it wouldn't be a long-term solution. It would no, at it, least it, get you out of a pinch or. It's you, you could, you could, I mean, I, a good friend who was over from the UK, he was down in mainland Mexico, broke his, um, his friend, um, had somebody do a little bit of work to it. Rode down, he was in, ended up in Guadalajara, had the company in the UK air freight him a frame to Guadalajara, went to a bike shop, had it worked on. So, yeah, you can do it. Um, but chromoly, especially better quality chromoly, is a, is a hard thing to work with. Unless it's on braids, if you've got a guy there with a gas torch and some brass, you can probably fix it. You can also probably fix titanium because like some of the earliest titanium frames out there were brazed, mm -hmm. um, yeah, which makes a lot of people laugh. It's like brazed and titanium. Well, yeah, it's like that's you know that's how a lot of yeah. stuff was put together. And is the titanium a certain um, ratio of titanium too? Is it like a certain? I'm not sure the yeah, differences in how that works, but it, it's a certain type of titanium. Yeah, it's um, custom butted um, three two four titanium, which is like the regular bike grade, and then the dropouts are um, water cut, and then CNC uh, uh, six four. Uh, three two five is like the it's the best balance. That's said, kind of if you were looking at Pro Molly, that would be your, your forty one thirty. That's does everything. Mm -hmm. It's great. It's light. It's strong. It's ductile. It's it's good stuff. But there's the dropouts. Um, so the fork dropouts are three D printed. Bottom bracket three D printed. Um, and that's all CP titanium because you can't you can't three D print higher uh, alloys of titanium. Whereas the dropouts are six four. The six four titanium is crazy tough um and that's basically that's the equivalent of 4340 which is what you would use in an automotive axle or differential gearing that's the level you know it's a lot harder and very mm -hmm. stiff very strong fun material to work with um stick that on a milling machine i'll show you how painful it is to <laughs> have you ever seen a titanium frame break or snap on the trail or have you ever seen it you know meet its limit i've seen a couple but not not mine because i don't have many of mine out there but um they can like everything i mean you can, every, every every product on the planet has a limit yeah i'm um, just wondering too because they they kind of have obviously different yield points but yeah the, the way that they break i would imagine would be different like with titanium is it can it is it sudden or would it be more um you know of a gradual thing? Titanium's titanium is very similar to steel. And um, out of everything, obviously number-wise, I've seen more steel frames break 
than I have done alloy frames. I've seen more carbon frames break than all of them. Titanium, though, breaks in a very similar way to steel, you know, because it's a steel alloy. Uh, sorry, so it's a metal alloy. Um, and so sometimes it's imperfections, and sometimes it's weird loadings on the material. Sometimes it's overheated kind of welds. Um, and that fatigue point. Um, so there's a reason on my bikes where the seat tube is here, the uh, seat stays come in here, and the top tube comes in below. Because typically what happens is that is what's flexing when you're sitting on the saddle. And most frames, it fractures right here. Just from riding, you know, not talking about impact or anything else. You know, so I've, you know, changed like kind of that positioning of everything just to accommodate that. But steel frames will fracture, you know, be a spine crack. Aluminum frames, I've seen some bad, bad breaks on aluminum frames. And I'm not saying that aluminum frames are bad. Aluminum frames are brilliant, done in the right way. Carbon frames, I have an evil following out there. XDR DI2, it's got electrically controlled shocks, electronically controlled shocks. Everything on there going through my brain as I'm hitting like some of the big trails down here. My brain's going, oh, it's carbon fiber, carbon fiber, carbon fiber. Oof. Um, you know, so it's, 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 and that's the thing, it's horses for courses. You know, if you're a world tour guy, I would, if you can afford it, go titanium. If you are, you know, kind of just, this is, I just want a bike that runs. Um, I can't remember her name, the girl who is uh, does cycling about on YouTube. She runs a surly long haul trucker, has done for four or five years. She's gone to most countries out there. Go, you know, I'm a steel friend. I mean, I still have my original, the bike I rode, Baja. Um, it's a Jameis Dragon 853. Got a 130 mil fork on it and rack on, on the back of it. It'll go on forever. So, you know, wouldn't be scared off by material, but I'm always going to tell people, you know, spend, spend as much as you can to buy the best thing that you can. Or one of my titanium yeah. frames. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like the mentality of, you know, I saw on your website, and I don't know if you'd call it, the pin the pinhill tagline or mission statement or what have you but um i like this uh mentality here uh you say explore the world or your backyard and so yeah. you know it's kind of like you you have these bikes that are designed to you know be a do it all rig um you can do anything with it like you kind of said earlier 98% of the time of whatever you're doing mm -hmm. um but I do like that idea of like, not just explore the world or your backyard, but it's also that like, there's so much, you know, there's people that'll travel across the world to go explore somewhere else. And sometimes they'll miss exploring their own backyard. And so I think it is also important to kind of emphasize that, that there, there can be a lot of things in your own backyard to also explore. And when you're on a yeah. bike doing stuff like this, um, it can make 
even going down the street, you know, feel like a, its own adventure. So I like that. Yeah, when I mean, it kills me, it's like um, back in Manchester, um, there was a a magazine article, and it was called Metro Trekking, and it was I can't remember the name of the magazine now, but basically, we all went out with one of the journalists. And one of the guys at the shop I worked at had no idea these trails existed. And this is in the center of Manchester. Or like driving to, you know, kind of ripping through little tunnels by the side of the canal and stuff like that. You know, same thing with Eugene. You know, you can all of these little kind of back alleyways. Um, and hey, you know what? If you want, if you want to go and ride in Mongolia. Great. You want to go and ride you know, Altiplano, you know, you know, South America, wherever, you know, ride through the Andes, Atacama Desert, go for it. But don't forget that you, you can have adventures that are equally as, as inspiring in your backyard. Do a taco tour, brewery tour. Mm. One of my all time favorite things we did in Southern California was. We did a brewery century. And it was, you know, it ended up being a very long 110 miles. But beers, tacos, along some trails that people have never seen before. And it's like, you know, it's like, just do it. Yeah, I'm down. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> sounds hey, like fun. anytime beer and tacos are involved, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, I think for the most part that will do it. But what I wanted to check with you is, you know, for one, um, people can go to pinhillbicycleco.com or yep. follow or follow Pinhill Bicycle Co on Instagram. That's um, the one. But you know, what would you say? You know, this this gritstone titanium pretty much is releasing over the next couple months. Is that kind of what it's Yeah, we're about? about two months out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're about two months out from that. I'm about a month away from talking to everybody about the steel version of it. Um, I'm kind of excited about the steel. I mean, it's, it's a steel bike. I mean, I love titanium. I also love steel. That bike will be kind of fun. Uh, as well, um, and that'll be kind of available August. Things have been a little weird, obviously pandemic and the bike industry in general is getting a little weird. But um, so mid June, um, anyone who really wants one of the gritstone titaniums, please let me know because that'll help me um, get things moving with the factory. Because we're tiny. I mean, it right now it's me, a little bit of Jen, a little bit of Trevor in the UK, you know. So anything we can do to build this we, is truly appreciated. <laughs> cool. Well, I, I hope uh, listeners find this, you know, intriguing. Um, I think, and it, you know, by the time this comes out, um, it'll be early June. And I think, uh, you know, there's still pre-sale frames available on the website right there are pre-sale frames available we got a few of them and if anybody sees that that changes 
email me, let me know you sort of, you know, kind of heard about it on the podcast. And I'm more than happy to reach out with, with that better price. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for taking the time, Andy. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Alice. So great. We finally got to chat. Definitely. All righty. Well, that was a fun conversation. I'm glad Andy took the time to walk me through a lot of that and share it with everybody. We're both based in Oregon, so I do hope that we can connect in person and and go on a ride together in the not-too-distant future. With that said, I do have a few updates for everybody that's been following the podcast and listening to these episodes. Thank you for joining us. One bit of news is that, unfortunately, as many of you might be aware if you do follow some of our social media channels, that Michael has closed shop at Bandon Bicycle Works. It was fun to do adventures with him and feature the shop, but he did feel like it was time for a change. He is going to do a family tour. Him, his wife, and their dog are planning on riding. Sounds like fun. So if you want to follow their adventure, this new stage in life, and see what's up out there, you can follow his new channel and Instagram at Wheels of Our Lives. I'll put a link in the description. I'm excited to see where this new adventure takes them. And if you've been following along since episode one, where we featured Michael and Bandon Bicycle Works, you may recall that we talked a bit about me building a Surly Midnight Special. That has a lot of cool components on it, and I'm still waiting on one last piece to show up, so I'm still hoping that I'll be able to share that in the future. But while I was waiting on that, I ended up buying a fat bike. And so I've been riding the dunes out here, and me and a buddy actually just went and did the northern tier of the Oregon Coast Trail, trying to ride as much of it as we could on fat bikes, which included a lot of beach, a lot of sand. That was a cool experience. We're planning on doing a southern tier later this year, but I am hoping to be able to share some of that content with all of you soon. So stay tuned. More to come. More fun stuff. Hoping to be able to feature more riders and cool people in the future. Everyone's out on their own type of adventure at their own level, and we just hope that we can share some of that fun stuff moving forward. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you on the next one. Pedal up that hill It'll be worth the thrill If you got the power of will To bike and camp and chill